This is the Surge Network Podcast, and I'm your host, Michel Duarte. In today's episode, we're going to listen to an interview with Mark Lanville, where he talks about missional theology and the challenges of pastoring in a post-Christian relativist society. Chris Gonzalez. We're here in Paradise Valley, Arizona. We're doing a faculty retreat for the Mitchell Training Center this weekend, and I'm here with Mark, and he'll why don't you actually introduce yourself. Who are you? Where do you come from? And tell us about this accent. Yeah, good g'day. <laughs> my name is Mark Glanville, and uh, my first time in Phoenix, I'm an Aussie. I come from Sydney, Australia, but uh, I live in Vancouver, where I work as a pastor and a scholar, and also teach at MTC, and it's really good to be here. Great. Uh, let's start out. So, missional training center. We're all talking about missional today. We're talking about missional theological education. Missional, missional, missional. Everybody has a different definition of that. It seems some very shallow, just changing pragmatics. Some more a deeper understanding of missional. What when you say missional, when you think of that, what do you what do you mean by that? What's inherent in that word? So, we're understanding that the biblical story is fundamentally a story of a God who is who comes to this world that He has made in love. And he's busy accomplishing his restorative purposes for his good creation that he secures in Christ. And it's, he invites humanity into this mission. And Christ followers are invited to live as a sign, as an advertisement, if you like, mm-hmm. to the Father's loving, restoring reign in Christ. And what it means to follow Christ is to, is to be part of this story, mm-hmm. to be caught up in this, this, this joyful feast. Mm-hmm. Now... now We'll get to the, let's go back to the academic side in a second, but I just want to get on your pastoral side. So you're a pastor in Vancouver. You talk about uh, that God's people are supposed to be a living advertisement to about God's kingdom, about Jesus, what he's doing. How, how, do you, how does that inform how you pastor, how you're leading your church? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's so contextual, right? Vancouver's thoroughly post-Christian, thoroughly relativist. Uh, well below 10, 10% of people uh, attending church, and even many who are attending uh Part of our worshiping community are holding on to faith by, by their fingernails, you know. So, you know, if, you, if in Vancouver you have a conversation in the cafe uh, and it, it comes time to, to speak of Christ, you, we've really got to start with our worshiping community. We've got to start with an authentic community because that's what people are looking for in relativist post Christian environments. So, I, I see they'll talk about the world and I'll say, you know what, I'm part of a community that's actually living a bit differently. And mm. I'm part of a community that really is a community. We're, we're family together. You'd love it. You would really love it. And, uh, you know, we, we, we are um, helping refugees. We're in the lives of people who are on or near the street. And, uh, you know, uh, to, to be honest, uh, we're Christ followers. And, um, yeah, we, Jesus is, is the clue to this community. That's a typical way the conversation with someone in Vancouver, for me, would begin. Hmm. That's really interesting. And so to, what we're trying to do then is, you know, for our congregation, um, there are those uh, who we, we have to unfold the biblical story and the beauty of of this Christ who ate with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Mm-hmm. And this is what it means, looks like, for our community to be shaped by him. But, but for others, you know, um, people who are already seeking justice deeply, we, we, we need to hold out that, you know, Christ is the clue to his creation. Mm-hmm. Christ is the clue. You can't do this by yourself. You can't do this as a human being. Christ is the clue. He's the one that's going to secure this stuff. So what are some things for your church? And you guys are in inner city, uh, right. Vancouver. Yeah, urban uh, church, yeah. What, uh, talk, about, talk about what are some things that, that you've, as you've been there a short amount of time. About three years, yeah. Uh, what are some things that you guys have been doing to try to paint that picture? 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I mean, like, an example of coming into our neighbourhood is we, we have Kinbrace, which is a refugee organisation um, d- deeply engaged in uh, support for asylum seekers who are seeking refugee status and, um, and also advocacy at, at a more structural level. Um, so working with things like mandatory detention for people who are refugee to Canada and trying to uh, reduce that and to hedge that. So that would, be, that would be an example. And as we journey with our congregation in this, which, and we try and stir faith in Christ and to strengthen faith in Christ and to nourish and to point to Christ and hold out Christ as the clue to the whole show, the show of the world, we... Um, you know, one of the things I'm constantly doing is sitting down and having coffee in cafes and hearing uh, their doubts and their concerns. And they will often um, speak in very relativistic terms. Well, there's Christianity, but how can you say that Christianity is really right? How can you say that Christianity over against Buddhism, Christianity over against uh, mysticism or yeah. secularism? And, and so uh, uh, one of the things I do is I say, can you see that the way you're talking isn't something that, that you've invented? Is this something that you've came up? What you're really doing is you're collapsing, really, to the cultural moment. You're really collapsing to, to the, the, mm. the default belief of Vancouver and of metropolitan cities. And so metropolitan cities are, by and large, relativistic. And so what you're doing, while you think it's really clever, it's actually a recent invention. <laughs> it's white. It was huh. invented in the West. It was invented by uh, white Western philosophers, such as Hume. It was invented and honed in the white universities. And you know, you know what, my friend, in the majority world, hmm. in the non-Western world, no one thinks like this. In Africa, not even 1% of people don't believe in the reality of God. Hmm. And so you're really collapsing to a cultural belief. Now, what do you think? Are you going to believe and follow the worldview of white Western academics in elite universities who are opulent and, and the, these Western... The West, which in the end uh, is on the top of the socioeconomic ladder and oppresses the majority world in some of our decisions, or are you going to listen more carefully to a Christ who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes? Mm. And for young adults in Vancouver trying to negotiate this stuff, you know, this is very meaningful. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now, let me ask you this. I asked you, so I see the missional question, explain that, and then I kind of drove you to what are some practical things that you're doing to kind of out on the streets? How are you engaged? You're talking about evangelism at a, at a cafe and refugee ministry. What about some of the, how does, um, so you, you preach every week and you have a worship service. How do those things play into a missional understanding of church? Because does that make sense? A lot of oh, times yeah. I think missional yeah. church, when I say, hey, we're, I'm pastoring a missional church, it's like, okay, what are the things you're doing out in the community? And that's, that's obviously got to be there. But, but I don't think there's an understanding of how the, the inward life of the church, if that's a, maybe in the right name, but so what is your sermons and, and the worship that you guys do, and yeah. how does that play into being a missional church? Yeah, no, that is so important. So first of all, liturgy and the shape of worship. You, you know, what, what we're doing when we gather is we're being nourished for our life Monday to Saturday. And we're reiterating the world, aren't we? We're reiterating the world, and we're telling the true story of the world, but we're t- telling it liturgically we're, we're telling it in rhythms and in practices and we're indwelt by the spirit we're doing it corporately as a family right? as a family you know profoundly and so so ha- to reiterate the biblical story we Aaron my wife and I and our colleagues we think very very carefully so for example our moment of confession at the time of confession every Sunday is a time where we confess our sins before the Lord and we we receive his forgiveness and we're renewed for our mission in, in culture 
Mm. Lament is a very important part of our worship. We lament because Christ laments the brokenness of the world. Christ grieves. And so we lament the brokenness of the world. We held a service recently for some uh, very uh, unfortunate, uh, damaging refugee legislation that the Canadian government passed. Mm. So we held a service of lament. And we had liturgical uh, moments and things that were spoken uh, that lamented in the presence of the Spirit uh, this thing that our broader community ha had done, you know. Uh, we, but we also, uh, we worship in diversity, Chris. Uh, this is very, very important. Mm. Uh, and <coughs> so we worship in, in a number of different languages. Um, we pray in a number of different languages. Uh, even though, we're, we're, to be honest, sadly, we're dominantly white, um, we, may, we work so hard that we have the spectrum of socioeconomic diversity in our church. You know, William Booth, uh, the, the founder of the Salvation Army, he, he started his church 120 years ago uh, among people who were drunkards and, and prostitutes in London. And he called vulnerable people, he called them our people. These are our people. Mm. And so to me as a pastor, I want to model, I want to model for our people living as family with people who have a different history to us mm. and who maybe are on the mar we think of themselves on the margins of society. Mm. So for me, as a pastor, you know, who we do Thanksgiving with, who we do Christmas with, who comes to our birthdays, mm -hmm. and we want to we wanna live as Christ did, with the tax collector, the prostitute, the sinner, which in the end is, is what we are as well. So we're speaking about corporate worship. Another part of corporate worship is reforming the people of God as family. Mm. So for us, feasting together is really important. Wow. And how does, that, how does it play out? Yeah, fully. Really so so we, 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 we're a community that, living in the biblical story, we, you know, I don't think you can beat consumerism as an individual. I don't think you can beat consumerism as a household. The antidote to consumerism is being a thick community as family. You know, we, because can, you know can what? We, can somebody tweet that? <laughs> you, can't beat, you can't beat consumerism as an indiv individual. You can't beat it. Huh. But a community that's indwelt by the Spirit, you know what? Being family together easily trumps the shallow, short-term thrills of consumerism. Mm. And so feasting in the Bible, you look at Deuteronomy 16, you look at the... You know, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus, New Testament scholars have said, he literally ate his way through the Gospels, right? And, and so um, an example would be uh, Resurrection Sunday. And, and this is the highlight of the church calendar, as you know, Chris. And, and man, uh, so uh, on... Resurrection Sunday, we pull out all the flags, and we, we, we get the streamers out, we let off the fireworks, and, and so we feast before the service, before we even worship. Mm. We feast, and uh, this, isn't con this isn't consumerism, this is feasting as a community, mm. this is becoming family together. And then we, uh, uh, we this follows a beautiful uh, sunrise litany, and then we feast, man, and then um, we go up for the biggest celebration uh, of the year. And this is a way of celebrating, again, what does worship do for shaping a missional community? Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate that Christ is risen. Therefore, new creation has begun. Christ is risen. Renewed creation has begun. And so we, the Holy Spirit launches us out of the community mm. with that hope and with that joy. Now, as far as preaching goes, in a post our post-Christian context, I have to flip the whole thing. Because in an evangelical context where the culture itself is pseudo-evangelical, you know, you start with Scripture, and you go from Scripture and the, and the authority of God's address in Scripture to the worshipping community. And you say, well, look, this is what Scripture says, so go and do it. You can't do that in Vancouver. You can't do it in Sydney, Australia, either. You've got to start with culture and argue from culture. <clears throat> you have to say, here's the cultural message. This is what's going on here. And see how it's not quite working. 
Well, show that for a minute. Now look at the biblical story. Can you see that Jesus trumps all of this? You know, can you see how, how what Jesus invites us into is inviting us to be fully human, and it's inviting us to live for the thriving of all, flourishing of all of humanity and all of creation. You know, you got a justice ethic. Well, that's wonderful, and most people in Vancouver have a justice ethic. But you know, powerful corporations and powerful people and powerful ideologies are holding. Uh, the poorest of the world uh, mm-hmm. at bay. It's going to take, in, in light of these powerful forces, it's going to take a powerful God to step in. Mm-hmm. And the biblical story is a story of a powerful God who doesn't leave his creation to rot, but steps in by the power of the resurrection to renew all things. So the resurrection trumps even the best refugee advocacy because we can advocate with hope that there is a God who stands behind his creation and will achieve this justice. So this is an example of how we start with culture. We go to the biblical story, and then we show, Chris, we show that Christ is the clue to his creation. Hmm. Explain that. That's a a big thing right there. That's some new begin. It's one of those big things I hear Mike (coughs) say, or I read new begin say, or you just say it. Christ is the clue to his creation, but can you unpack that a little bit? Well, one of us said once that Newbegin said Christ is the clue to creation, but none of us can find it in Newbegin, so we don't Ah. know where it's from now. (laughs) When we say Christ is the clue to creation, we're saying that that God has created this world with, with, you know, this is my Father's world. Mm. And broken and corrupted it may be, but it belongs to him. And in Christ, the Father is recovering Mm. his purposes for his good creation, mm. for in him and through him and for him are all things. Amen. Let's, let's talk about the academic side. You're in the, the final throes, the final stages of, a, of your PhD yeah. uh, program. Yeah. And so talk, talk about what are, you, uh, what are you writing on? What is your dissertation been on? Sure. My, my writing's on, my research is on that. Uh, the refugee or, or the stranger in the biblical book of Deuteronomy. Huh. And my wife, Erin Gohan Glamble, uh, her PhD dissertation, she's in English Literature Cultural Studies. She studied uh, the fiction and biography of people who have been refugeed to Canada and then written. Hmm. So actually, uh, my wife and I, um, our next book project is to work together on a book uh, that equips uh, and informs uh, church based response to refugees. Mm. We're looking forward to writing that together. Uh, we need to hold our marriage together at the whole time because we have very different writing styles. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's going to be good for us, but it's going to be painful, Chris. <laughs> Don't tweet that. <laughs> won't tweet that. We'll just put it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. Um, what uh, for Mitchell Training Center, what area uh, do you teach? I teach Pentateuch, yeah. Okay. And, uh, you, you know, what, what needs to happen now in scholarship Chris, and it is happening in the NTC context and other contexts, is we need to read all scripture as we need to understand that say Deuteronomy for example which is my dissertation, this was written in the first place to shape a community to live the way humanity was always meant to live and to live in the context of ancient Israel or Deuteronomy, to live in a way that would be magnetic so that the nations would come and meet Yahweh uh, her great God. And, and, and so the scripture was always written to shape a community, uh, to live as a sign, an instrument, a foretaste, as Newbegin said, uh, to, the, to the reign of Christ. Mm. And so we need to read every biblical book 
And we even need to understand systematic theology in this missional sense that in the first place, when it was originally written, it was written to shape a community, to advertise the reign of Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the Old Testament. But because it was shaping a community then, we better read it today to understand that by the Spirit it is written to shape us for our, to play our role in, in this beautiful, wonderful story, the true story of the world, where the Father is securing his good purposes for the world in Christ. So this is what some people have called, and rightly, I think, a missional reading of Scripture. And this is something that's very uh, key, key part of the DNA of MPC. Now how, so let's get into that. How do, you, how do we read Deuteronomy? It's, a, it, it's given to form a community, but it's a different community. It's not us. That's not your church in Vancouver. That's not my church in Phoenix. We're not supposed to go live under a Deuteronomic code or something like that. How does that? How do you? How does that play together? Yeah, thanks for that great question. So, so you know, first of all, uh, hermeneutically, we, we have to take the step of understanding what was the role of this text when it was addressed to to this ancient community. You know, so let me give you an example that picks up on some of the, the territory we've already travelled. Uh, Deuteronomy has uh, a lot of feasts. Mm-hmm. One is from Deuteronomy sixteen one to seventeen. You could look it up. And uh, this is part of uh, Israel's festival calendar. Three times a year, the community would journey to Jerusalem and feast together. And what we see in Deuteronomy 16, that what this book was doing for the original community, it was, it was uh, inviting the community to feast along with the widow and the fatherless and the stranger, the refugee. Mm. And what we learn there is that, that they were becoming family at the feast. Huh. They were becoming kin. They were becoming sister-brother. So what God was doing in Deuteronomy, it was he was taking one nation among all the nations, and through these feasting texts, for example, he was reshaping humanity again to live as family, to live as brother, sister, especially with the refugee, uh, the fatherless, the, the orphan, if you like, and the widow. And so if our first hermeneutical step then is to understand you know, what, what the function of this text was in the first place. And, and then we need to tease out, well, what are some of the, the themes or, or some of the trajectories that we can generalize that God is doing in the world throughout Scripture, that this Scripture calls attentions to, so that then we can recontextualize this text to our own time, for our own worshipping communities. I tell you, Chris, man, you're in Phoenix mm. and I'm in Vancouver. We're going to need to recontextualize differently. And our friends in Brazil that we've spent the morning with, they're going to recontextualize mm-hmm. differently. And our children, when, when they're adults or teenagers... Mm-hmm. Man, they're going to be recontextualizing differently too. But what it calls us to do is to live as family and to think how can my worshipping community in Vancouver live as humanity was always intended to live, as brother and sister. Uh, Vancouver is a community that by the research uh, people experience real isolation. Uh, So we want to do community thickly. But you know a biblical community that, that reflects Christ, that reflects Deuteronomy's feasts is going to be a community in diversity, and, and, and honestly, uh, I'm um, I'm pleased to be able to say to you that some of my best friends in Vancouver uh, are on the margins, hmm. and they're people who I love to spend my time with, and they love to spend their time with me. How is that? You've you've done the you've done a longer time on your PhD from the time you lived in Sydney, and and there you were involved in ministry and had, as you say, have friends with are friends with people in the margins, and and in Vancouver, people in the margins are people. How's that influenced how you do your studies, how you do your... Yeah, yeah thanks, Chris. This is a, 
very important. Um, you, you, can't, uh, you can't read the text, uh, the biblical story, aright if you're not obeying the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because the biblical text was written in the, that to these ancient communities, these older communities, in order to transform a community. If someone, when originally received Deuteronomy, sat up on a mountain by themselves and read it, and then said, I understand Deuteronomy, the, the, the writer, Moses, would have said, you don't understand Deuteronomy until you do community like this. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if it was Deuteronomy 16, the feasting text we were talking about. So you want to read the, the scripture today. You can't understand the scriptures until you obey it in your particular context. And, and I think, to be honest, uh, it's a tremendous fault of the evangelical church uh, that our teachers and our academics, particularly in our, in our um, academic institutions, often uh, have never really thought deeply, how is this text going to shape a mm. contrastive community in a particular neighbourhood to be a light to the nations here? Mm. And so this means, in turn, of course, that our academics often end up training students just to read the Bible with their head. And you read the Bible with your head without, a, without being obedient uh, you're not reading the Bible uh, uh, right. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so Mac, it's been. It, we understand that in Scripture, the, re- the word truth isn't to be understood in a modern Western Enlightenment form. The word truth in Scripture refers to the faithfulness of God, uh, aletheia in Hebrew, emeth. Yeah. And the faithfulness of God is dynamic. It's God the Father coming to his world and uh, in love and restoring all things in Christ and calling a people to live as an instrument to his reign. And so do we, if we understand the truth, then we are living into the covenant faithfully. That's what it means to read scripture right. So for myself, in my PhD, um, I've, had the, the, I've been blessed with being able to, to study very, very closely and doing deep academic work um, and juxtaposing this every day uh, with being in the life of our neighborhood. Yeah, this has been a joy. Last question. You are uh, an accomplished jazz uh, <coughs> musician. How does, I don't know much about jazz, but I know it's a unique style of, of music. How does thinking jazz and being able to, to, to play jazz, how does that impact your pastoring and your doing theology and studying the Bible, or does it? Yeah, fully. Yeah, I, I don't know how to ask the know, question in the right way because I don't. But I'm like, I, know, I wonder. Fully, you, yeah. you have, as, as you're talking, I'm like, man, there's a unique. You have a unique voice as you're as you're answering these questions. We're talking a unique voice that comes from that, and I want, I'm wondering, like, and you also in in who you are as this jazz musician. <laughs> though, is there a, is there a, how does that play together? Is there? It's a fun question, uh, and it's really hard to answer. And yeah. but, but I mean, just as an a priori, it. it it does. It displays. There's a tremendous need, isn't there, to to have, push our artists forward, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and to encourage the artists in our communities to be doing the very, very best art, mm. and, and to be as as Christian. Does that leaders, not always happen in the Christian oh, subculture? I, I don't think so. No, I think it's, <laughs> they're dramatically sidelined. But you know, mm. uh, we we need to promote this as a sacred calling, even wow. as carpentry is a sacred calling. But there is a particular calling of the artist that can call attention to grief and joy. Wow. Um, carefully but powerfully in a way that culture can hear it and there's a particular shape of the artist art shapes your brain somehow Mm -hmm. and the artist's voice and speech and thoughts um, is going to be creative, it's going to be left of centre and uh, it's probably going to be prophetic my my brother's an academic as well he's a very creative academic and uh, we don't know how but we know that years of practising jazz music literally for 8 hours a day has uh, shaped our brain 
uh, in all sorts of weird ways. Yeah, um, but, uh, but 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 I also try to use it in preaching, Chris. Um, so my uh, a favourite way that I did this for my just the way that I took the most pleasure in once was one Resurrection Sunday, uh, a couple of years ago, and. Um, I got up to the piano and delivered the sermon from the piano, and I did it first-person narrative as if I was a eucalyptus tree. <laughs> and I told the story, the biblical story of, um, of, of being in a very hot Benjamin bitumen car park uh, in Western Sydney. Um, you know the sterility of a fallen world. You, you know this hot bitumen car park, no place for a beautiful eucalyptus tree, but that this eucalyptus tree. Um, survived in some kind of community with the animal world and, and the trees. And it was in a supermarket car park, even worse. But then the terrible news came on the, uh, uh, from the birds and from the other trees whispering uh, that the Lord of the creation had been killed. And what that, trying to tease out myself, you know, and musically also, what, what would that feel like as a tree, you know, that was made by our Saviour, you know. And then three days later, this, this wonderful news of the resurrection and trying to, to puzzle this out as a tree and uh, the eucalyptus tree spreading his huge branches and just feeling, you know, uh, new creation has begun. You know, death has been defeated. Yeah, all things made new. Anyway, I don't know how to answer your question, but it's fun. That's great. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. For more information, go to www.surgenetwork.com.